Our scripture from tonight comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 4. And I would just encourage you that there's a little uh, red book there in your pews if you're visiting with us for the first time or if you've been here many times. Um, But there is an NIV Bible there. And I'm going to be reading from some other scriptures, um, other chapters from Matthew tonight that are not going to be on the slide. So I would just encourage you, if you want to get one of those books out, and um, you can maybe use your bulletin or something to hold these other places. But we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Then we're going to be reading from Matthew 14, and then lastly from Matthew chapter 28. But the main scripture I'm going to read tonight, uh, I'll read now, and it'll be on the slides. And then the other ones, we'll be referencing them uh, throughout the sermon. This is Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 22, starting in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Well, I want to welcome you. Uh, My name is Keith Case, and I'm a pastor here at Providencia. It says uh, lead pastor on the website and on your bulletin, but I rarely refer to myself in that way. I will tell you more, hopefully, as we unpack this sermon, why I hesitate to use that term. Um, But we are in a series right now called Rooted, and this month, the whole month is focusing on being rooted in leadership, specifically rooted in leadership velocity, meaning uh, how do we create more leaders? How do we create new leaders? How do we pass uh, the baton faster? How do we invest in people in such a way that instead of using them or instead of stunting their growth or holding them back, we're actually equipping, empowering, and unleashing them? An ecosystem, if you will, that celebrates failure or risk-taking. An ecosystem that celebrates creativity or innovation. An ecosystem that is grown organically from the ground up or from the inside out. What would it look like to be rooted in such an ecosystem, to be rooted in leadership like that? Why is this so important to us? Because we see it so clearly laid out in Scripture, yet we see it so very, uh, not so often in the workforce, and especially in the church, unfortunately. Uh, He was two years older than me when we were in high school. Uh, I had just become a Christian, and he drove a black uh, Jeep with no top on the Jeep at all. Uh, We lived on a mountain in Tennessee where there were seasons, and he was my ride to club, Young Life Club, on Friday mornings at 5 in the morning. We would leave, and uh, it was, you know, sometimes you know, like 20 degrees outside. Uh, sometimes it was raining, but he was my ride. 
And he was also my ride home from a Bible study that was at my high school, and he was also my ride home from soccer practice. So for about three years of my high school, I rode with a guy who had no top on his Jeep in Tennessee, and uh, his name was Billy. Billy was also the hairiest man I've ever met in my entire life. Um, and uh, we loved him for that. Uh, he was a rather short guy, stocky guy. He was a little piston, a little fighter. Uh, he would take on anybody. He wasn't afraid. And for whatever reason, though, uh, Billy loved me. Billy loved me, saw me as his little brother, and he offered me rides everywhere. But more importantly than that, during my high school years, I never had any money. And uh, Billy always had money somewhere on his persons. Uh, it was maybe in the, that like third pouch of his backpack that you know, he never went into, or maybe it was in the bottom of his Jeep plugging the drain plug. You know, there was a quarter there or something. But there was always enough money on Billy for me to at least get a candy bar, a Coke, or even more importantly, on Tuesday nights when we would come home from Bible study, Vita Bella Pizza. Now, for those of you who don't know, pizza can be a fast food item. And when I was a kid, there was a place called Vita Bella Pizza that made fast food pizza. And we would go by Vita Bella Pizza on the way home. I would be starving because we'd had soccer practice. And then we stayed for this Bible study. I would have no money. And Billy would say, do you want a Vita Bella Pizza? And I would say, Billy, are you serious? Of course I want a Vita Bella Pizza. So he would buy me a Vita Bella Pizza and a Coke. And we would be dry. We'd get on the interstate. Remember, no top on the car. So, of course, to eat our pizza, what did we need to do? Pull over. Raining, uh, freezing cold, snowing, it didn't matter if there was traffic flying by. We would pull over on the side of what would be I-95 and eat our dinner, our Vita Bella pizza. And Billy, as the traffic would just be flying by, right, like cars flying by, tractor trailers honking their horns and everything, Billy would be like, so, man, how was your day? How are things going? Blah, blah, blah. Just keep asking me questions, keep pursuing me, talking to me about life. He was the first guy to ever introduce me to Thomas Merton. Uh, he was Catholic, you know, very, very committed Catholic. Um, but Billy gave me this gift of investment. He was always investing in me or someone. Always. I think it took him 12 years to get through uh, architecture school. Um, partially because he was always with people. He was always investing, always spending time with people. Such a different mindset than what I was used to growing up. For our time tonight, I have some questions for you to start our time and kind of in the shadow of this story I just told you. But the first question, and, and maybe you want to write these things down on your phone or in your bulletin or something, but I really do want you to, to take something with you tonight in uh, something to help you kind of think through this sermon this week or think through these questions. But the first question is, who is investing in your life? Who is investing in your life as if, here's the second part, somehow the future depended on it? Who is investing in your life as if somehow the future depended on it. Could be in your workplace, could be in your family, your city. Who's investing? Second one, 
Who is pouring into you with radical generosity? Who is pouring into you with radical generosity? Now, uh, you know, sometimes that means money, uh, but it can also mean time. It can also mean somebody sharing their talents or their gifts. And then third, who is taking the time to truly know you with compassion and courage? Who's taking the time to really know you with compassion and courage, to help you know yourself in ways that you may have never known before, both in your gifts and your blind spots? Take a moment. I I really do want you, if you can, to to write these down. And I realize that some of, for some of us it could be painful um, because we may go, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I have anybody. Or, or maybe uh, there's so many people that you, know, you need more time. But um, can you write names down? Who is the investor or community of investors? Who is showing you radical generosity? Who is taking the, ni- the time showing you compassion and courage in your story. Are these names from your past, or are these still happening now, like this week, this coming week? Um, Tonight, as we get into this story, the Scripture that I've read and more that we're going to read, we're going to look at how Jesus does this specifically in the life of four fishermen. Four fishermen. And he does it around their vocation. And I want to give you three things that we're going to see that he does tonight as we get going. I rarely do this, but I'm doing it tonight. Number one, he expands their vision for their vocation. These are fisher, uh, fishermen, but he's going to expand their vision for what their work is all about. Um, I'm sorry, he's going to expand their, voca- their vocation as far as what fishing entails. Then, secondly, he's going to teach them what fishing is all about. And then lastly, he's going to teach them to work out of rest. To work out of rest. Okay, verses 18 through 22, the ones that I read for you earlier, we find brothers Peter and Andrew and James and John all out, different scenarios, but casting their nets. Andrew and James, uh, or James and John, are mending their nets, and they're with their father, the family business. And it, we see here in verse 18 to 22 that Jesus meets them in their vocation. While they are fishing, while they are doing the work of fishermen, and it is there that he invites them to something. While they're in their vocation, so I don't know what your specific vocation is, but just imagine Jesus meeting you there in your vocation, and he says to them these words, Come and follow me. Come, follow me. What he's really saying is, come live with me. Walk with me. Sleep where I sleep. Eat what I eat. See what I see. Hear what I see. And I'm going to show you something in the midst of all that. 
that there is something new beginning to unravel, something new that is coming. What is he going to do if they do this? He says, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. Now, some of you had the luxury of not uh, becoming a Christian when I did, um, when I was 14, back like almost 30 years ago. Um, But when I became a Christian, the way that I was taught about what it meant to be a fisher of men, and a text that we're going to get to later that they called the Great Commission, was I felt like I was trained to sell Jesus like a vacuum cleaner. And I was being trained on how to close the deal. In fact, if you read a Christian, a Jesus-like evangelism book when I was a kid, and you paired it up with a like, business leadership book on like, how to close the, like, sell the invisible, you would see all these principles like, interacting together. And I thought that was you know, what I was supposed to do, was sell Jesus to people. I want to propose to you that when Jesus asks these men to come follow him, and when he says to them, I'll make you fishers of men, he means something quite different than salesmen, especially vacuums. Um, He is going to expand their vision of their work, not just fishing for fish, but fishing for men. And what could that mean? It does not mean use them. It does not mean that they will become a part of your capitalistic enterprise. It means that he is going to teach them how to invest in people. He's going to teach them how to invest in creation and people, to root ourselves in people. And here's your application. Right now, it's going to seem a little bit uh, backwards because I'm in some ways, you would think, okay, who are you investing in? You know, that's my next question for you. But I'm, I'm actually taking you back to the one I asked you in the beginning. What area of your life do you need someone to invest in? In other words, what area of your life do you have right now that is a source of pain and you're just surviving it? You're just getting through it right now. But if other people knew about it possibly, if other people were given the opportunity to invest in it, that you actually could receive care, that you actually could be loved, that you could be invested in, that something actually could grow there instead of just survival. What area? Please write that down if you can. Part of my journey as a Christian, by the time I got into college, I wanted to study theology and know all this theology. And I thought if I knew all the theology, if I got it right, then it would change the way I live my life. It didn't happen. In fact, I studied so much theology and I just cut myself off from interacting with people that I really felt dead inside by the time I left college. But I was given this opportunity to go to uh, Miami, and um, 
stay with this man. I think he was probably 70 years old. Some of you have heard me talk about him before, named Bill Iverson. And if you're planning a trip when you're in college to go to Miami, the last person you probably think of is staying with your grandparents. But he was like, you know, grandparent age. And he was my introduction to Miami, Bill Iverson. So we get to Bill Iverson's house. It's called May in Miami. I'm there with one of my other friends named Mitchell Moore and two guys from Texas Tech who I've never met before in my life. We pull up to this guy's house. It's right on the 50-yard line of the Orange Bowl, his street. We go into his house. We sit down for lunch. And he asks the guy from Texas Tech to pray. And the guy prays and he says, God, thank you that your mercy is greater than your justice. And right then, this explosion happens. Light flashes into the house. There's like windows all around us. Everybody is like this, ah! like as the light comes into the room. And uh, Bill stands up from the table, goes outside. It's like a sunny day. And lightning had struck a tree in his corner yard. So we all come back into his house, and I'm like, what have I got myself into? We sit down at the table, and the guy says, lesson number one, God's mercy is just as powerful as his justice, or God's justice is just as powerful as his mercy. And I was like, man, whatever this guy says, like, I'll do it, right? Like, I I believe this guy, whatever happens. Um, we, We slept in Bill's house. We ate our meals, meals with Bill. We walked all over Little Havana. We very rarely got into a car. Every single place we went, this man would interact with people, people that I would have gone like, ah, I'm not going to talk to that person. I don't want to get involved in that situation. Bill was interacting with everybody. He'd play pickup basketball with kids in Liberty City And he would throw elbows so hard that these teenage boys would be crying. Plus, he did 100 push-ups every day. The first night we were there, first day we were there, we were walking by the 7-Eleven. Behind the 7-Eleven, there was a family, a Hispanic family, living uh, by a dumpster. They had an old van. They just had parked there. I don't even think it had gas in it. By that night, these people were living in the same house we were. Again, I don't, what did I sign up for? Like lightning bolts striking trees. Now there's homeless people living in the same house. We don't know these people. Like what do they, what do they steal our stuff in the middle of the night? Like what's happened, you know? But the whole time, God is undoing these things in my heart. I didn't even realize it was happening. Bill Iverson sent me into places in Miami as, you know, this boy from a mountain in Tennessee. I didn't know if I was going to walk out of them. And imagine if I hadn't. Most people would be probably afraid of being sued. Bill didn't care. Bill was about something radical. He was about living this thing out called the gospel. I'll never forget my month with that 70-year-old man and the investment that he was making in my life because he was living it out, not just talking about it. He was actually living it out. 
As we continue, I want to jump for us to Matthew chapter 14. So if you have your Bible there, you can uh, follow along. This is verses 14 to 17 that we're going to be referencing. So crowds, if you can imagine, you know, back to chapter 4, uh, Jesus has just called these four fishermen to follow him, and eventually there's going to be 12 uh, people, not all fishermen, but they're going to be following Jesus, and Jesus is going to be healing people, he's going to be, miracles are going to be happening, crowds are going to start gathering, and this is a scene where they're out in the boat, the vehicle of their vocation, right, their fishing boat, and they're on their way over to land, and Jesus sees a crowd gathering, and this is what it says. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As evening approaches, the disciples came to him and said, "Uh, hey, Jesus, (laughs) this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. The sun is beginning to set. Where are these people going to go? Shouldn't we send them away back to the villages so they can get themselves some food, so that they can buy some food for themselves and feed themselves. We don't have the resources here. And Jesus said, they do not need to go away. You will give them something to eat. They don't need to go away. You will give them something to eat. We have only here Five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. So these fishermen, they have been following Jesus long enough now that they are beginning to see the needs more and more. In fact, the crowds, you know, that are gathering, I mean, just the need is like screaming out, need, need, need. And they're becoming more and more aware of it, and it's, I'm sure, becoming a bit overwhelming to them. And they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, there is a need here. We don't want to leave these people hanging and send them back. But what does Jesus do in verse 18 and following? He says, bring them here to me, talking about the loaves and the fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000, besides women and children. In short, Jesus had just taught the fishermen that were followers of him what fishing was all about. In short, what Jesus had taught those four men who were fishermen, what he just taught them was what fishing is all about. See, fishing is not about who's caught the biggest fish. Fishing is not about who has the biggest bank account from all the fish they've sold. Fishing is about feeding your community. When Jesus says to them, I'm going to make you fishers of men, and we skip forward 10 chapters, and what is Jesus getting these fishermen to do? Feed a crowd of people with fish. And some of us work in spaces 
where we actually never get to see the people that we're serving. If you're a chef, for example, and you're in the back, you never get to interact with the person at the table and see the smiles on the faces. Some of you have the luxury of seeing the people, the satisfaction. But imagine, whatever your vocation is, that Jesus is saying to you tonight that he wants to make you an artist for the people, a doctor for the people, a banker for the people, a carpenter for the people, a teacher for the people, for the people. Caring for the community in radical generosity. And see, if you go back, there's other stories, uh, you know, where Jesus is teaching them about being radical in their generosity as far as being for the community and being for people. Remember the story where they're fishing. The disciples are out fishing, and they throw their nets, and they're not getting anything. And then Jesus says, hey, hey, throw your nets to the other side. And when they throw their nets to the other side, what happens? It says the nets are so full, they can't even pull them in. That the provision that God has given is so abundant, is so generous, that it's breaking their nets. That the invitation that God has given us to be fishers of men, to be investors in the community, that he has abundance for us to give away in that. He has abundance for us to be servants of men, to invest in people in such a way that the people we're investing in will actually get to enjoy better lives possibly than we have. Or the day, if it's in your vocation, will be better at doing your job. Do you work in a vocation or in a job right now where someone has come to you and said, hey, I want you to do what I am doing. I see the gifts you have. I know that's one of your passions. I want you to do the job that I'm doing in five years, and I'm going to invest in you in such a way that you're not going to be able to do the job. You're going to be more creative, more innovative, better at the job than I am. If you have people doing that in your life, please come see me after. Because you are a rarity. It is rare, so rare, that we have that type of radical generosity happening. So my question for you with that little segment is in your workplace or in your vocation, who are you developing to be the next you? Who are you developing to be the next you? I know Will. Where's Will at? Will Keen. He's right there. So I think this is, is this your last Sunday, Will? Before Will goes off to UVA. And um, Will's been a member here, and we're so grateful for Will um, and his investment here in this community. And just give you a small story. He doesn't know I'm telling this story. But uh, Will, Will took my son saltwater fly fishing, Right? 
high school student goes out, picks up a you know, junior high kid, 13-year-old kid, says, yeah, I want to take you fly fishing, and I'll teach you all about it. And then after they go fly fishing, they go to lunch together. Now, when I was in high school, guys, I just wasn't thinking that way. But I see that more and more in people like Will. I mean, the, the teachers we have here, uh, Ryan here in the front row, I know there's other, Jen, uh, others that are here or maybe traveling right now, I see the way that they stand out as people who go beyond the classroom to investing in the future. They're not trying to secure tenure. They're investing in the future. It's so beautiful to see, and I'm so grateful, and thank you, Will, for taking Harper fly fishing. Um, Susan was my best friend's mom. Uh, she would become my wife's mentor uh, later in her life. But when I was in high school, almost every time I went to their house, she offered me something. She offered me to slow down. It would start like this, Keith, how are you doing? In the kitchen, of course, right? We'd be sitting there. I'd come in. That was like the entry off their garage right into the kitchen. And she would be reading possibly at the kitchen table or doing something. And then um, she'd say, how are you doing? And I would say, fine. And uh, I would just, you know, kind of like getting ready to go upstairs or do something else. And then she would say, Keith, how are you really doing? I later found out she was a counselor. Um, but I was like, at first, what do you mean, how am I really doing? Um, but she would, you know, pull out the chair. Why don't you, you, know, you want to sit down? She would talk to me. She was the first person to ever talk to me about the Enneagram when I was like in 10th grade. Um, she was a spiritual director. And her life was about helping people like me slow down. And it was absolutely terrifying. But her invitation, every time she saw me, breathe, Keith. Rest, Keith. What are you working so hard for, Keith? What's the go, go, go? And sometimes she would say it like this. She would say, how was your week? And when I got done telling her, she would say, man, you've done a lot this week. You must be exhausted. And I would be like, yeah, I kind of am. Does it ever get lonely? Yeah, it kind of does. She would just begin to get deeper and deeper into these things in my life that were so hard for me. And then she would remind me of this thing called grace. This radical thing called grace. And she started inviting me to listen to the voices in my head that kept saying to me, go, go, go. Because it wasn't just like, those voices are bad, Keith. Turn those voices off. She's like, where did those voices come from? Where did the voices come from in your head, Keith, that said, rest is bad? Or only rest once completely freaking exhausted? Or only rest when life is about to fall completely apart. Where did those come from? 
And as we began to unpack those, and she began to offer me the words of Jesus, words like, come to me, all who are weak and weary, and I will give you rest. The world said, work to prove your worth to me, my culture, my school. And by the way, this is the essence of most of the religions I've encountered in my life, is that you have to accomplish something to achieve this level, to get closer. But she kept reminding me of this thing that Jesus had already declared my worth by giving his life for me when essentially I had done nothing. And that his work that he accomplished for me, that he wanted to give it to me freely. That he feeds me. That he feeds us. And that it is for us. That the power that he has, he uses us to serve. And that he wants to give that power away. Now, I tried to explain this to the staff or the worship uh, team before we got started here tonight, and I didn't know exactly how to say it, and it's probably the most radical thing I'm going to say tonight, but the, the kingdom of God is so radical, and Jesus is so radical that in some ways it doesn't make sense to us. But I'll, I'll try to put it this way, and I know metaphors always break apart, but I really want my kids in many ways to have a better life than me. And, and what do I mean by that? I want to give to my kids in such a way that they can flourish more, that they can have uh, healthier relationships, that they can uh, you know, do things and, and be a part of things and be creative, and, and, and I want them to have a better life. Now, if I want that for my kids... How much more does God want that for us? If you go back to the, the vacuum cleaner salesman idea that I had been kind of given when I was younger, the idea was I was closing deals for God. As I was selling Jesus, the more I could sell Jesus, the more uh, people would buy into Jesus, the more I would be promoted and make the big man happy. Because I was... Bringing business. But the closer I've got to this kingdom of Jesus is that Jesus is always taking this posture of washing people's feet. That the God we have wants to serve us for eternity. That, that I thought, you know, at the end, he was going to be like at the top of the pyramid and we would just be like, Hail the king, hail the king. And the Bible does talk about that. But I want you to know that it's actually going to be upside down. Because the, the nature of Jesus has always been to serve and to love. And it's going to be that way for eternity. And it's so hard for me to think that there is a king, that there's somebody in power who has authority over my life that wants the best for me that is actually a king of justice. That he actually wants to heal me. 
that he actually exists not to use me and not to be distant from me, but he wants to be so intimate and close and connected. And the gifts of his kingdom that he offers to me freely. He offers to me freely. And that takes us to Matthew 28. This is after Jesus' death, after his resurrection. All the 11 are there. And Jesus told them to go to this mountain to worship. And they do. And they see him. And it says, but some doubted. Some doubted. In 18, this is verse, starting in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." And Jesus is saying, I have been given all the power. And then Matthew says this word, therefore. Therefore. And what Matthew is saying in that word, therefore, what Jesus is saying is, I've been given all this power, and guess what I'm going to do now? I'm going to give it to you to go out where? To all nations. There's no place for nationalism in this kingdom. There's no place for racism in this kingdom. This kingdom is all nations, all races. He's empowering us to reclaim that reality for the image bearers, for human beings. He's empowering us to go out and serve all nations, all people. And do what? Baptize them. Bring them into the family. Bring them into this reality. Declare the reality of their worth and their value over them, not because they have done anything. Even here it says they're doubting him. Not because they have some super strong faith. They've accomplished some great work. Bring them in. Baptize them into the family. For what purpose? Teach them to obey all I have commanded. And what is it that Jesus has ultimately commanded us to do? Step one, to rest in his love. See, we used to have a calendar that you worked for six days and you rested on the seventh. Now we have a calendar Because of Jesus, where today is the first day, and you come to this place, and I declare the love of God over you every week. That's at least what we're trying to do. Declare God's love over you every week. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of anything you're going to do this week or you're not going to do this week. In fact, you may do things this week that you think disqualify you from the love of God. You may have done something last night, but there's nothing that can separate you from his love. Rest in that. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, work out of that rest. 
You don't have to prove anything to this world or to God. You get to enjoy creating. You get to enjoy work. Here's your application. To be rooted in leadership velocity is a journey of learning to rest in His love for you. And to find those things in you that keep you from resting in that love. Not to punish those things, but to listen to them, understand them, bring compassion to those places. You know, that's what my friend's mom was doing to me every time. Keith, the God I serve is as patient, if not more, than I am. I don't know what you've done this week, Keith. I just want to love you. That's the invitation she gave me every week. To rest. Be honest with yourself and someone else. Where is it that you struggle right now to rest in his love for you? Let us pray.